You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome. The History of the Great War, episode 102. This week, a thank you goes out to Ian, Niall, Daniel, Christopher, and John for their support of the podcast. They will be able to listen to the next Patreon supporter episode later this week, as we continue our look at the development and usage of railways during the war. I would also like to thank my local public library, the Greene County, Missouri Public Library, for this episode. As I am knee-deep in research for next year's episodes, I have been hitting up the library pretty frequently over the last month. If you are able, you should support your local library as well. And if you are looking for something to read for the holidays, head over to historyofthegreatwar.com, where you can find a mostly comprehensive list of sources used in the show so far. Our story today begins in September, as the Battle of the Somme enters its third month. And while the fighting would continue all the way until November... This would be the month of the last large British and French offensives in an attempt to break the German line. It would be a long, hard month of fighting, with smaller efforts scattered on either side of the main effort in the middle of the month. This middle battle would come to be called the Battle of Flair-Cochelet, and it would see the use of tanks in warfare for the first time. Although they would not result in the great victory that was hoped, they would help the infantry to make some pretty reasonable gains. We begin today with not with a large offensive, but instead at the village of Guillemont. The fighting over the village of Guillemont, which was located on the southern end of the British area of the front, was seen as an essential stepping stone before the British could launch their next attack. The attacks on the village had been numerous up to this point, but they were going to give it another go, because without it, the next attack would be blunted on its southern end, which would be a problem if you're trying to, you know, break through the line. The Germans had already stopped every attack so far, and it was an important area for their men to hold on to as well. Villages like Guillemont are found all throughout the First World War story, small bits of ground that take on a psychological effect far greater than their tactical, strategic, or geographical effects as a whole. In this case, the Germans had already lost so many men trying to hold on to this one village that to eventually lose it would mean that all that sacrifice had been wasted, or at least that's what a lot of men would think. On September the 3rd, though, this would come to pass. The British attack on that day would take the village, but not without one hell of a fight from the German defenders, who stuck to their positions almost to the last man. 
When the Germans were finally pushed out, and it came time to do a head count for the various units, some companies, which at full strength would have numbered around 250 men, were down to five, as in one, two, three, four, five, as was the case with the 5th Company 2nd Battalion, Infantry Regiment 76. This was not even the worst hit, with nobody surviving from the 3rd Company of the Fusilier Regiment 73. When it came time to write the regimental history for that Regiment 73rd, the official regimental historian, Major Sealer, chose an interesting solution to the problem of there being literally nobody to tell their story. On the page for this third company, the report should have appeared, but instead there was just a simple statement. Quote, nobody from third company can provide a report. All men were killed, as was every officer. We honor these courageous comrades symbolically through this silent page believing that a simple 373 is more eloquent than words. In the same book of regimental histories, there is a poem written by the father of a member of the 4th Company of that same regiment, which was similarly hard hit, but not completely wiped out. His name was Louis Engelbrecht, and he was himself a retired soldier. In his poem, he would say, quote, To the heroes of Guillemont, you men have saved the day your duty nobly done. Now you lie and take a rest in the dying rays of the sun. And over all the hills, above the blood-soaked sand, soars like a breath of heaven the thanks of the fatherland. Some of those rhymes are a bit too perfect, and I'm not good enough to check the translation from German, but that seems about right. A similar situation happened at Ginshi a week later which was positioned on the, to the east of Guillemont and was the next target on the British list. The men of the 16th Irish Division pushed through on September 9th and were able to consolidate their positions on the other side of the village, pushing the Germans out in the process. While these were two big successes, there were other objectives that were not taken, like those of Highwood, Wood Trench, and Falamon Farm. All of these and several more remained in the hands of the Germans, and they would stay that way until the main attack on the 15th. The decision to allow this was made by the British commanders on September the 9th, when it was finally clear that it, they had to give everybody time to rest and prepare for the attack just a week later, and these small attacks, even if they captured the objective, would have worn out the men so much that they would have been mostly worthless on the 15th. The French would also be quite active in September, although generally not at the exact same time as the British. Foch was changing his tactics, and he abandoned his previous attempts to have all of the French troops on the Somme attack simultaneously, because he did not see a correlation between the managerial and supply problems that this created, and increased successes on the battlefield. Because of this, there would be several French attacks during September, but always just one army or one corps. This made them large by normal standards, of course, but small when compared to the larger efforts on this same front. The one on September the 3rd would involve 10 divisions on a front of 17 kilometers. The attack got off to a good start, and to the north of the river, they were able to advance quite far. However, it would eventually stall out after capturing some trenches and a few thousand prisoners. You know, how it goes. Their next attack would then be launched on September the 12th, which was three days before the British attack. This time they attacked on both sides of the river, and the French 6th Army was able to make some pretty early advances, and this went well enough that Foch actually notified the 2nd Cavalry Corps to prepare for possible action in case it was needed to exploit the attack. 
However, like all attacks, it slowly ground to a halt, even though most of the 6th Army's reserves were committed late in the day to try and get it moving again. Even with this success, the French attack would still end before the British attack began on the 15th, which meant that while the French were attacking, the British were sitting in the trenches, watching, and while the British were attacking, the French would be doing the same thing. I'm not quite sure why this is. Uh, Nothing in my research seems to have a clear answer, other than the armies just not being well-coordinated, and not properly communicating delays or changes in date to one another. The French would provide some artillery assistance on the 15th, but that would be all. Throughout the next month and a half, through the rest of September and then through October, the French would launch multiple smaller attacks that resembled the British efforts from early September, and they had roughly the same level of results. Many of these managed to capture small bits of enemy territory, but there was nothing truly remarkable that happened, and generally it just resulted in some small changes to where lines were drawn on a map. And now, we come to the tanks. The moment you have all been waiting for, or maybe that's just me. Whether or not tanks would be used in the September attacks was not a guaranteed thing until right before they happened. In fact, many British leaders were against using them entirely, or were, at the very least, quite pessimistic about how they would perform. Many since 1916 have criticized the British leadership because they believe that 1916 was too early to use the tank, and that if only they had waited or improved the design and tactics a bit first, then maybe they would have had a larger influence. There was a time that I would have agreed with that sentiment. However, as I've been researching for the podcast, I think my my thinking has been swayed in another direction. One quote that I quite like on why my mind has shifted comes from Brigadier General John Charteris, who said essentially that the British could learn as much from a single usage of the tank in the battlefield than they could from a year of theorizing behind the front. I find this argument really persuasive, especially when you consider how long it sometimes took the British to learn the battlefield lessons even when they did have them, especially when it came to utilizing new technology. If they would have waited, they probably would have just delayed learning those valuable lessons, and they just would have had been forced to solve them later in the war. I think reliability is something that is often pointed to as one of the reasons the tanks were released too early. And sure, their reliability sucked. Most of them will break down before they do anything. But the British thought that they would be more reliable on the battlefield than they ended up being. Without actually seeing how much stress the tanks were put through on the battlefield, maybe those reliability improvements would not be made in time for the Mark IVs and Mark Vs that were used in 1918. Maybe those tanks that would play a big part in winning the war would not be as reliable as they would end up being. In general, when looking at history, there's an easy mistake to make that if person X had just been able to go from point A to point C without making the mistake that was point B, then everything would have been better. However, often point B, in the case, in this case, the use of this new tool, the tank on the battlefield, is critical to finding out that there even is a point C and in which direction it was in. So that's a pretty long discussion, but that's a topic that gets brought up a lot if you read about the early usage of tanks, so I thought I'd bring it up and give you my opinion on it. The fact was, though, that the tanks were going to be used, so let's talk about their effect on the front. 
The first group to experience the tanks were actually the British infantry themselves, who did not have a great idea of what was going what they were going to be working with when it came to the tanks. Here is Sergeant Harold Horn describing the experiences of his unit as they moved to the front in the days before the attack. Quote, on our way up to the trenches, we passed groups of large objects concealed under camouflage netting, but in the dark, we could not see what they were. Also, we noticed that at intervals, white tapes had been laid on the ground, leading in the direction of the trenches. When we got into position, we had the job of filling in the trench at each place where the tapes met it to provide a crossing place for the tanks. After we got into position, we were told that tanks, some kind of armored vehicle, were coming up to lead the attack. End quote. So as you can see, the British infantry had just as little of an idea of what was actually happening as the British did. During the attack, the plan was for the tanks to move forward with the infantry, but because they were slower than the infantry, they would start their advance slightly ahead of the men, which would put them at the German trenches hopefully about five minutes before the infantry got there. The really important bit of the plan, though, was that the artillery would leave lanes for the tanks to drive through, lanes that would be about 100 yards wide that would not receive the normal artillery barrage. This was both to leave the ground as intact as possible, but also to allow the tanks to perform this early advance without getting destroyed by their own guns because nobody wants that. These lanes would be highly visible both on the ground and in the air, as this British airman explains. Quote, when we climbed up through the lines, we found the whole front seemingly covered with a layer of dirty cotton wool, which was the smoking shell bursts. Across these were dark lanes, drawn as it might have been by a child's stubby finger in the dirty snow. Here, no shells were falling. Through these lanes lumbered the tanks. End quote. These lanes were pointed to some of the toughest German obstacles on the front, with each tank assigned to them for their capture. This was a decent plan, taking this new tool and giving it to the infantry units as a way to give them support against these tough obstacles. There was just one tiny, tiny little problem. The tanks broke down. A lot. When this happened, the infantry found themselves completely alone, trying to assault these positions that had not been touched by the creeping barrage, which was never a recipe for success. Not all of the tanks would fail to reach the German lines, though. And when they got there, the Germans were definitely surprised. In general, the German commanders knew that the tank existed, or at least they knew that something called the tank existed, and that it was some sort of armored vehicle. However, they did not know any details, any at all. And even this scant bit of information was not known by all of the frontline units. So needless to say, men were quite surprised when this thing started rolling towards their positions, like this soldier of the 211th Infantry Regiment. The soldier starts off by talking about how it had affected another soldier that was nearby. Quote, there is a crocodile crawling into our lines. The poor wretch was off his head. He had seen a tank for the first time and had imagined this giant of a machine rearing up and dipping down as it came to be a monster. It presented a fantastic picture, this colossus in the dawn light. One moment its front section would disappear into a crater with the rear section still protruding. The next, its yawning mouth would rear up out of the crater to roll slowly forward with terrifying assurance. End quote. 
While caught off guard, the Germans were not helpless, and they would manage to quickly come up with some countermeasures, which I think speaks pretty highly of the ability of small German units to improvise. A few tanks found their tracks destroyed by grenades placed in them by German soldiers who would creep right up to the tanks, and some were disabled through the use of armor-piercing ammunition that had been issued to the frontline units as a way of dealing with the metal shields that British snipers sometimes used at the front. Both the improvised countermeasures and the problems of just getting the tanks forward would make for a rough day for these vehicles on the 15th. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. While the tanks take up a good portion of the story on September 15th, they were not the primary weapons for the British. That would still be a combination of artillery and infantry. For this attack, there was an artillery piece for every 10 yards of front, and a heavy gun for every 29, which makes for a concentration about double that which had been seen on July 1st. These guns would support an attack of 10 divisions that would be facing half their number of German troops. On the far left of the attack, the Canadians would make their Somme debut as part of General Goff's reserve army, and they would push out from the recently captured Pogere towards the village of Cochalette. Here they would do well in what was a very hard area of the line to attack, with the Germans in front of them putting up a fight and drenching their front with fire. And also, there was fire from the Canadian left, where the German front remained unengaged and therefore ready to assist. To the south, the 47th Division was able to finally and decisively capture High Wood, and then move on to capture Starfrist Trench, which is one of the funnier names for a battlefield position that I've seen so far. It just makes me smile every time I say it. Starfish Trench, Starfish Trench, it's great. These gains did come at a high price, though. The 47th lost 4,500 men as casualties over the course of just a few days of fighting. One corporal of the 47th would write some words about his experiences on this day at the front. Quote, that day I saw sights which were passing strange to a man of peace. I saw men in their madness bayonet each other without mercy, without thought. I saw the life's blood of German and Englishmen flow out together and drench the fair soil of France. 
I saw men torn to fragments by the near explosion of bombs, and worse than any sight, I heard the agonized cries and shrieks of men in mortal pain, who were giving up their souls to their maker. The mental picture painted through the medium of the eyes may fade, but the cries of those poor, tortured, and torn men I can never forget. They are with me always. To the south of the 47th, the 14th Corps found themselves hard-pressed to make any gains at all, and it would be here in front of Genshi that the tanks would do worse than anywhere else. Almost the entirety of the tanks assigned to this area of the front broke down or got stuck along the front. In the rare case that the tanks did get forward, it was also here that they encountered the most coherent German response, with a mixture of armor-piercing rounds and other small arms fire disabling many of the vehicles. It was also here that one of the biggest problems of early tanks was clearly evident. When the tanks could get forward, which was far from a certainty, but when they could, they were both too slow to keep up with the infantry when things were going well, but also too slow to rush a point of resistance when things were going poorly. This meant that they were only super useful when things were going just okay, but but not great, but not bad, but just okay, which is not something any military commander would ever strive for. One of the most famous actions for the tanks during this day happened in the village of Fleur. It was here that the 15th Corps attacked with the New Zealand Division on the left, the 41st in the center, aiming for Fleur itself, and then the 14th on the right. The New Zealanders did a fine job of moving forward right behind the artillery, and this allowed them to hit the first German positions and then quickly move on to the switch line and from there to the outlying trenches to the north of the village itself. This was important. If the 41st had any hope of capturing the town, the trenches to the north had to be neutralized. The men of the 41st also followed close behind their artillery, and they also had at least one tank with them as they attacked into flare. It was then, around this time, that a Royal Flying Corps pilot above the fighting glimpsed a tank moving through flare, and he would send a message saying, Tank seen in Main Street of flare going on with large number of troops following it. Later, this message would be slightly altered by the newspapers to result in a headline, a classic case of slight exaggeration for effect, but what made for a very classic headline, which would read, A tank is walking up the high street of Flair, and the British army cheering behind. For the tank in Flair, the situation was very different than what the headline may portray. We are lucky enough to actually have a first-hand account from one of these men inside the tank, which was D-17, in the form of 2nd Lieutenant Stuart Hostie, and he would discuss something of what it was like to be in the tank at the time. Quote, having steered the engine by using the brakes up to this point, the engines were beginning to knock very badly, and it looked as if we wouldn't be fit to carry on very much further. We made our way up the main street, during which time my gunners had several shots at various people who were underneath the eaves or even in the windows of some of the cottages. We went on down through High Street as far as the first right angle bend. We turned there and the main road goes on for a matter of two or three hundred yards and then turns another right angle to the left and then proceeds out towards the next village. But we did not go past that point. At this point, we had to make our minds up on what to do. The engine was really in such a shocking condition that it was liable to let us down at any moment. So I had a look around, so far as it was possible to do in that middle of the village, being shelled at that time on both sides. 
I could see no signs of the British army coming up behind me. So I slewed the tank around with great difficulty on the brakes and came back out to Flair's trench and turned the tank around to face the Germans. End quote. It would not be long after this that D-17 had a track damaged, which fully immobilized the tank and meant that the crew had to abandon it. The other tanks available to the troops around Flair did not make it into the village itself, but instead took up supporting positions like D-17 did at the end to try and put its weapons to use to assist the attacking infantry. Overall, the attack on Flair's was a success through a combination of support from the tanks and well-timed infantry advances, both together, never apart. One German evaluation of the attack from a Lieutenant Stevens of the German 17th Division would give two reasons for the successful attack. Quote, the success of the British attack was due to two important factors. One, the complete failure of the defensive barrage, and two, the extremely close cooperation between the enemy infantry and artillery, which was made possible by the remarkable achievements of their aviators. The next stage of the battle would be called the Battle of Morval, and unlike the attacks on the 15th, it would be a much smaller attack on a more concentrated area of the front. The big difference between this attack and the attacks in early September was that in this case, the British were not saving men or ammunition for a later attack, and because of this, they were able to concentrate their material that was necessary to make some success. They set up a series of bite-and-hold attacks that would involve the British taking several jumps of a bit over a thousand yards, which would encompass the first trench line, and they would, then they would stop while still under their protection of the artillery. A critical piece of this plan was a steady and consistent counter-battery program that allowed them to use aircraft to identify and then engage about a third of the total German artillery in the area. This allowed the infantry, who went over for the first time at noon on September 25th, the ability to get there, take a trench, and then not have to be hit by the quick uh, and strong artillery response. The one problem with these efforts was that it did not present any real chance of a short-term victory on the Somme. Sure, the British could advance a little way forward on a small front with ease, but because this was slow, it would always give the Germans the ability to just pull back and prepare a new line of positions that then the British would have to take another step to take. Really, this could happen as many times as necessary for the Germans, especially at this point in the year when one of their primary concerns was preserving manpower. On the 26th of November, a new operation began for the Reserve Army, and this was a move against Thiepville Ridge, which would come to be called the Battle of Thiepville. For those keeping track, Thiepville Ridge was one of the original objectives on July 1st, and this would be the first real attempt at recapturing those objectives since that date. The hope was that the Germans were too distracted by the Battle of Morval, and all the previous fighting had worn down their reserves enough to make this possible. They had a good amount of artillery, and the attack was launched on a front of only 6,000 yards, and into this area of the front were pushed pieces of four divisions, including the 1st and 2nd Canadian. When they moved forward, they were able to take the village of Thiepville on the first day, but then after that, things became disorganized, and little additional objectives were captured, but nothing major. During this time, the casualties were staggering. I don't remember numbers this high per division since July 1st, with the Canadian division losing over 6,000 men, which is way more than most other actions at this point. 
This would not end the fighting in this area of the front. And they, they would be back here in October to attack the pretty much the exact same positions in the Battle of the Anchor Heights, which we'll talk about next week. Overall, September was a costly month for both sides, with the British and French losing about 177,000 men and the Germans 140. This makes this the most, most costly month of the entire battle for the Germans, by a pretty large margin, and the second most costly for the British and French, of course after the July disaster, which nothing even came close to. The attacks on the 15th had strained the German defenses, and it was clear that the German generals did not have an adequate answer to the immediate problem of constant British and French attacks with their large artillery advantage. One of the biggest problems was that, was that the German counterattacks had become too predictable, and this allowed the artillery to lay fire at the right time and in the right place to neutralize these counterattacks. This need to evolve their defensive arrangements would be a constant problem for the German generals, and would be a continuing story until the end of the war. It did not help that that they were so outnumbered in every regard at the Somme. Not just infantry were running out of men, but also artillery, especially with the increased focus on counter-battery fire as the battle wore on. Here is Grafit Koenig of the Guards Field Artillery Regiment 347. Quote, there were two of us left to serve the gun. There was Cannoneer Botcher, who was killed a few weeks later at Heinenkorps, and me. My dear friend Botcher passed the shells up to me from a trench dug behind the trails of the gun. I had to load, aim, and fire. We kept this up for hours, giving it our very last reserves of strength. We were under extremely heavy fire the whole time. A hedgerow ran away to our right. All of a sudden, whilst we were engaged in heavy firing, I saw 20 or 30 Frenchmen run past us in their light blue coats. My first thought is that we had been overrun. We prepared for close quarter battle, but this was unnecessary. They were deserters, so we carried on firing. End quote. I just really, I really like that quote because it shows that casualties weren't just in the front line, and especially as the British and French started dropping a lot of shells on the artillery. A lot of casualties were caused there as well, but, you know, they kept up with their work because they knew that the men at the front were counting on them. Unfortunately for all involved, all that the men on the Somme had to look forward to in October was another month of fighting. Maybe it was a little colder, but that's not exactly good either, and we'll discuss all of that next episode. <laughs> 